Okay, welcome to business school. My name is Phineas Ellis. I'm the co-founder of Stereotype Studio. We are a podcast production company. And I'm Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And in today's episode, we are super excited to have Liza Landsman on. And as I was just saying, Liza, this is great because this is one of the rare times we get to talk about you as opposed to me when we catch up. So why don't, why don't we start by having you give everybody a little background on yourself? Uh, sure. Hey, uh, Liza Lansman. I'm a general partner at the venture fund NEA based in our New York office. Um, I joined NEA about two years ago after having spent, gosh, it's stunning to say this out loud, 25 plus years as an operator. That's older than many of you listening. And most recently, I was part of the founding first executive team at Jet.com and got to lead that company through its acquisition by Walmart a couple of years ago. Um, I spent most of my career before that um, in large public companies, mostly in fintech and deep tech. What was that process like when you were acquired by Walmart? (laughs) Is that a real question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, like that sounds really cool, but what goes into it? And you can give the you don't have to go into too much detail, but uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, so I I think there are a couple of things that were really interesting to me about it because I did spend most of my life working inside of large public companies um, until I got to play a, a really active leading role in our integration. I think maybe in part because I spoke fluent corporate American, or at least I thought I did. So I would say a couple of things. Uh, One, all acquisitions um, have some uniqueness to them based on the cultures of the two companies. And I think from the outside, it's hard to imagine two companies that had more dissimilar cultures than Walmart and Jet. You know, really hyper growth, fast moving, tech startup on the East Coast, you know, kind of very staid, conservative retailer uh, based in the South. I was corrected because early in my tenure there, I referred to Arkansas as being in the Midwest and a colleague there was quick to say, darling, you're in the South. (laughs) But one of the things that was really fascinating about it is that actually the cultures were a lot more similar than one would think from the outside. So extremely customer focused, both teams, extremely mission oriented in their own, you know, slightly different ways, very community oriented and caring about the communities in which they operated and really intense focus on performance and results. And so, you know, some of the things that I thought would be hard in bringing the two teams together were less hard because of those underlying like shared values. The things that are difficult in an acquisition almost always uh, are about people and processes, not like the operational mechanics, which is just which are just pieces of work. And I think that was certainly true here. The other thing that I would say is I give the management team at Walmart a huge amount of credit. Doug McMillan and at the time Greg Ferran and a few others who really recognized what was special and valuable about Jet and were really thoughtful and cautious about not trying to like Walmartize us too quickly. 
someday I'll tell you the story about the first Walmart cheer we all had to do, which is pretty funny. <laughs> I actually did not, I did not know about it before we joined. And uh, during like our first joint town hall, the comms guy who I'd gotten pretty tight with was like, and then Mark will lead us in the Walmart cheer. And I was like, you're fucking with me, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So as you know, my wife used to work at Jet slash Walmart uh, post-acquisition. And she had an interesting perspective on that too when she went to Bentonville. She was just like blown away and like loved the Walmart culture and loved how structured and organized everybody is and how customer focused they are. And I think that's like a misnomer that it's going to be this like sleepy big corporate company. And it's, it's not, it's a very innovative forward thinking business. I mean, you have to be to stay on top for so long. So we want to touch on some board dynamics. You're on a number of different boards. You've been in many board meetings in your time at Jet and E-Trade. And then now you're on the other side of the table when I first joined E-Trade, um, the board was in transition. Um, the CEO did a, a really good job of just shifting the board to sort of modernize with where the company was going, but it was very much in transition when I joined. Um, and while there weren't observers, there was it was a, an oversized board, and there was certainly this sense of everyone had to say something to prove how smart they were and why they had a right to be in the room. Um, I will say both as a board member and as a person who has run companies, that is not a really constructive use of board dialogue. And whether you're an observer or a full board member, it's really about being a trusted advisor and counselor and and maybe a little bit of helping the management team see around corners that they might not have seen before. Everyone either thinks you're smart or don't before they come into the room, and that's not really the place to prove it one way or the other. Can you speak a little bit to what may be conventional wisdom around sitting on a bunch of boards? I think that there may be a perception held by some that sitting on boards means you're at the tail end of your career and you collect fees and sit on boards and provide some insight to those companies periodically. My first question is just, is that a misnomer? And then my second question is, can you touch on the differences between sitting on the board of a startup versus growth stage business versus a public company in your experience? Sure. So I think it's a little bit of horses for courses. So I will tell you, I have sat on a couple of different public company boards. I sit on one now, Choice Hotels, which is an extraordinary board. Every time I look around that room, I'm amazed they let me be part of that family because it's just incredibly accomplished, amazing people who are actively involved as counselors to that CEO and management team. And I think make a huge difference in the success of that company. And so I I probably reject the premise of the question a little bit in that I certainly think there are boards and I've seen them in action. And I know people who think about public boards as like a place where I show up for four meetings a year and cash my check and that's it. I will also tell you, I talked to a couple of different CEOs before I joined NEA about joining private boards as an independent board member. And one of the CEOs I talked to, I was like, well, what do, what do you, how do you use your board? Like, what do you get? And this was a growth stage company CEO that I was talking to. And he was like, I just, I just don't want them to do any harm. That's my goal. And I was like, well, that's a really stupid use of my time. And frankly, it's not a great use of your time either. And so I don't know that I would 
differentiate so much public private but more what is the attitude and goal of the management team around the use of their board and i think really smart private companies especially hyper growth companies think about a couple of things both in board composition and how they use their boards one is like do they understand what the capabilities experience and knowledge their board members have that they don't so they can successfully leverage them and that includes network, access to talent, access to additional funding. Do they have the right cadence and content for meetings? Like a monthly update where you're just like, here are the numbers. I don't, I mean, you can just send that out. I don't know why you need to meet in person for that. But to think about like, what are the two or three critical issues I actually need counsel on? And is this counsel that is better given in a group setting where I'm going to get, be able to triangulate a POV? Or is it just, better and more constructive for me to call one or two members of the board separately, either because I trust their counsel more or because of the nature of this like subject, I'm gonna get better advice offline. And then the third thing is around the board dynamic, which is, as I said to you guys before, like I think there are some people who feel like they always have to volunteer something as a way to kind of like justify their presence in the room. You know, and there are other people who kind of like only really lean in when they have something salient and relevant to say. And like, I will tell you, I uh, am on the Squarespace board and there's a guy on that board, Michael Fleischer, who's also an independent. He's the CFO at Wayfarer. And I will tell you, I mean, you, you guys may be too young to remember the EF Hutton ads, but it was an old brokerage. When EF Hutton talks, people listen and all those ads, like everyone leans in, you know. Michael Fleischer does not dominate those board meetings, but anytime he says anything, everyone in the room, like a hush falls over and leans forward because he has such relevant experience to where that company is now, you know, very late stage. He's an incredibly talented operator. He's unbelievably strategic. And if he is weighing in or opining on something or offering advice or an introduction, you know, it's going to be extremely valuable. I don't know if that really answers your question. That was oh, it's a, great, a little bit it's of a, a rabbit hole. It's a great answer. And I love that you rejected the premise of the question because I was kind of leading you. One of the things that we do on this show is kind of attack some commonly held beliefs by folks that just sort of enjoy the sort of ups and downs of the new drama that's happening in the world of startups. It is um, very dramatic. I mean, I'll tell you one of the notions around that that I have always I struggled with a lot because I worked at a startup in the late 90s and then not again for another 15 or 16 years so pretty big gap between them is that I just remember at Jet oftentimes people were like okay well you know you're fine but like we really don't want to hire anybody else who's worked at big companies and you know my feeling is if you can find someone who's been able to like get a ton of shit done at a big company, like you hire that person right away because it's so much harder than to get things done in startups. And like that's the person who like is constructively subversive in a way that is extremely useful inside startups. But I do think there's this belief system that small, like scrappy startups have the monopoly on innovation and large companies have the monopoly on bureaucracy. And I can tell you, I have experienced both of those things in the alternative sources in spades. One of the things that's been happening in startups that we've been reading about more or hearing about quite a bit more is the tension between young and old or new and experienced or used mm -hmm. and experienced. Founders who have started companies and scaled them very quickly, then transitioning out 
in exchange for an experienced operator. There's a whole lot of implications that are popping up there from culture to diversity and inclusion and all sorts of things. But can you speak about that a little bit from a board perspective? You know, you have a young founder and once the company has scaled very quickly and is now very relevant and there's a lot of interest in later stage investment and bringing on new board members, can you speak a little bit about what that tension is like and what the purpose of a board is at that stage of a business to sort of usher the young startup that has proven it can scale very, very rapidly to this point, but then sort of the board comes in and potentially is seen as a handoff to the stage where they could eventually get acquired or go public. Yeah. I mean, look, I think ultimately uh, the board really has one job and that job is in a private company is essentially to be the boss of the CEO. I mean, there there is the notion of representing the rights of the shareholders in private companies that is really more complicated because especially if the people on your board are investors, like are they really always consistently representing the rights of all the shareholders or, you know, are they equally being fiduciaries to their own funds where they have LPs who they've got an obligation to, but their like collective job is to be the boss of the CEO. And so part of that, as is true for any board, public or private is knowing when you have the right CEO to do what comes next in the company. And when you don't, I think this tension around the like experienced operator, young entrepreneur is real in that it is often true both in public and private companies that the person who's gotten you to the stage you were at is not necessarily the right person to take you through the next stage. But I don't think that's universally true. And I would also say good boards think about that well in advance of moments of crisis. So they've planned for it. And good boards help coach CEOs to think about the ensemble cast building of their team so that you know, it is sometimes true that the the founding CEO can't be the person to take the company public as an example. But it is equally true that sometimes when paired with a great COO or a great president, someone who maybe doesn't have all of that experience themselves can still be the visionary leader. And they're often, you know, like a fantastic product person or an amazing tech person married with someone who's their great financial operator or just a great scaler or has fluency in public markets. I'm a big believer in those pairings. And I think the best things that boards can do are be intellectually honest with themselves and those founders, but also it can't be a, we all have known this for years and decide to only talk about it six months before the IPO. And I think it is the great challenge in boards that struggle, I think is conflict aversion. I mean, that's huge across companies in general, but I can definitely see that happening at the board level. Yeah, I mean, look, it is, I used to have a a colleague at City and our running joke was, Lord save us from conflict averse white men, because (laughs) both of us ended up for a lot of our careers, like being the person who was like, yeah, you got to fire that guy. And if you're not going to do it, I'm happy to do it. Or you have to have give this person real feedback. Or 
yes, it seems fun to acquire these companies, but actually that's not a good idea and we're not going to spend the money on it. I'm just a big believer in the cleansing value of sunshine on these topics. And it is particularly sensitive at the board level because there is this really important fine line between being advisors and being the collective boss to the CEO and thinking that you're running the company. And they're very different things. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, uh, we don't have... I mean, as you know, we have Tony on our board, but we lean on a lot of folks like you and, and others for counsel frequently. It's kind of like the, I kind of look at NEA as like a broader yeah. family of people that are helping us out. No, I, I think that's right. At the risk of like public service announcement for NEA, like we do have a teaming model and, you know, having been part of the NEA portfolio before I joined NEA, like at Jet, we definitely benefited from that. We had Tony on our board, but like Albert worked with our team on our mobile app, like Matt Sachs and Amit both worked with us on model. Like we had a lot of people from the NEA family working with us who weren't on our board. Yeah. And it's super helpful to have that. It puts less pressure on like having this one person who's like perfect to play a certain role. Um, There's a lot of resources available. I mean, I think that's right. I will tell you, I also have this view that is, I don't, it might be widely held across venture capital. I don't know, which is, it really strikes me in public companies, although they don't often do this regularly, like everybody's term is a year and you have to get reelected every year. And I kind of wish we had that in private companies because the person who is most helpful to you when you are in seed stage is not necessarily the same person who's so helpful to you when you are past product market fit and trying to scale. And once you've scaled, that person is maybe not the same person who's ready to help you figure out how to go public. And I do think more refresh on board so that you could really have people sitting around the table that are appropriate for the stage of company you are would be super helpful. And that's why I'm a, I'm a fan of bringing in independence earlier than just like the year before you think you're going to go public, because I do think it's a great way to get a different skill set, different set of skills and perspectives around the table that are maybe more stage appropriate or more chosen for their stage appropriateness. And that's hard to anticipate in early fundraising rounds. Yeah, that's interesting. Probably they get kicked out of the VC union now. But. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the VC world a little bit. So you started as a venture partner at NEA and then you became a full-time partner. What hooked you and made you want to go all in on this? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I really came to NEA knowing the firm reasonably well, but it's very different to live inside a place than to know it from the outside. But when I came and I joined, I really thought, oh, this will be the world's most interesting palate cleanser between real jobs. and. I kind of just fell in love with the intellectual promiscuity of it. I mean, as an operator, even though you think your days are incredibly diverse, and they are in many ways, like you're solving problems within a swim lane. You may be solving a diverse set of problems, but it's still kind of like in one area. And just like picking a day at random. And this week, I looked at very early stage fintech startup a plant-based protein company, a robotics company, a supply chain company. And, you know, the truth is, like, I'm a little bit of an intellectual magpie. 
And so having a gig where I actually get to do that and people think that's good, as opposed to me getting distracted, was very compelling. And I would also say, I'm not sure that I could ever work at a different venture firm. I just really like these people. They're just actually like funny and normal and like a little quirky. And, you know, as I have gotten older and more seasoned in my career, my patience for working with people I don't like has really gone to zero. Um, And so finding a place that has really stuck to the no jerks rule is quite remarkable. Yeah, that's so important. It sure is. Can you speak a little bit to the size of company that NEA invests in typically? And if you wouldn't mind focusing on consumer, we talk a lot about consumer on the show. And on top of that, what are the things that you're looking for in a company that you invest in at a seed stage versus a later stage in consumer? Um, sure. Although we don't do a lot of seed, but NEA actually, one of the great things about NEA as a platform is that although we we tend to start early and our, we normally enter in like A's and B's, we will stay in for a really long time. Like Robinhood, we've been in since the seed, but um, gosh, I don't even remember. We just did the E or F. Um, Masterclass, same thing. Coursera, we've been in since the beginning. And that's also, we just led a very late stage round for them. And so it's a pretty broad platform. So we like to come in early because we like to find companies where we can put a lot of capital to work over time. We tend not to do that much seed, I think in large part because it's such a, the scale of the fund, our our last fund, NEA 17, um, which we announced this past March was a $3.6 billion fund. It's just not that efficient to do a lot of seed. Out of that, we'll, we will do it sometimes. On the pure consumer tech side, I would say a lot of the stuff that we're looking for is really a little bit of like motherhood and apple pie. So we're looking for you know differentiated tech or product innovation. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the technology side. It could be on the process side. It could be on the design side. I'm not just saying this because we're talking with Stephen, but like Burrow is a great example of that. Their innovation is not in pure tech, but it is in the process and in the product itself. We're looking for really high quality teams. We're looking for people who we think are open to feedback and will work with us and who will actually understand how to extract a lot of the value from a partnership like NEA. And we're looking for a big TAM. I mean, that's really it. I could tell you there's some other stuff at early stage, but like, is the product what is, good? What is TAM? Oh, sorry. Thank you. Total addressable market. <laughs> Thank you. Acronym police. You got me. <laughs> yeah. So we want it to be a great team, a really strong defensible product, and that the long-term business opportunity is huge. So I mean, that's you, pretty you, much it. <laughs> you invest across a variety of industries. And in our last episode, uh, we interviewed Ken Wen, who's the founder of Republic. They're trying to democratize venture investing. And I think one of the really cool things that they're doing is trying to provide better access to companies that come from more diverse locations and people from different backgrounds, whereby, I mean, you know, the stats on what traditional venture backed founders look like and where they come from. Sure. And, it, and it's hard. It, it's hard for VCs, I think, to find all these companies in other places, especially early stage at the, at the very, very early stage. And so what they're trying to do is like, how do we help 
these diverse companies and founders prove out concept, which then allows you know VCs to to notice them and and, and kind of pick from a broader pool of people to to back. What do you think your role is as a as a venture firm in promoting innovation and promoting like the future of the world? Because I, I think there's oftentimes this uh, there's a view that VCs are just doing it for a financial return, which is obviously a huge component of it for good reason, um, and it aligns interests. But you know there are firms that just focus on SaaS, right? And I don't, I don't know right. that those firms are necessarily making, they're, they're not backing companies that are necessarily making the world a better place. So what, what role should venture play in innovation and in evolving our society as a whole? Well, I mean, look, I think I, I will once again reject the notion of your question a little bit on Good. probably two fronts. Uh, one is it's important to remember who funds venture. And the reason that I say that is that some of the biggest funders of venture are state pension funds and retirement funds for teachers and firefighters and policemen and the people we've all been very appropriately celebrating during the pandemic and actually like providing a vehicle that generates great returns for those kinds of funds actually think is really important in building a better community and like making the world a better place. And that is not just like the nice story I tell myself to justify why I have joined the Peace Corps at 50. Or <laughs> it's mostly not that. But I do think that actually is a, an important and vital purpose of venture. Because those funds don't actually have, they have a lot of capital put to work. And it's important for them to find places where they can deploy it at scale with relatively high confidence in return. And venture is one of the places they can do that. So that's thing one. Thing two is, I of course can't think of one right now, but I'm going to struggle while we're talking to think of one. Like, I kind of reject the idea that like there aren't some forms of SaaS that are making the world a better place. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I agree with you there. It's a broad, okay. it was a very broad sweeping generalization. I, I, I agree, but like, I was like, investing in clean tech at times hasn't been the most profitable thing, but it's like we kind of should, like, right? We should. Figure this yeah. out. No, I look, I agree with that. And I think the when we tried to like distill what our mission was as a fund, you know, and it, and it's tough because of our diversity, but we basically came down to investing in companies that are trying to drive vital change in the world, either in how we live, work, play. Right. And that is really how we think about it. And so I do think venture has an important role to play, but I, I guess I think about it from a little bit of a different direction, which is it's not because we have to like give up the hope of profit to invest in things that are sort of on the come. It's that I think venture has a different risk appetite than a lot of different other kinds of capital. And so, and it's also more patient than a lot of other kinds of capital. So it gives us the opportunity to invest in things that can take a longer time to mature. So like we invested in LonePal recently. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's the two guys out of Solar City. They started this company and they are basically creating sort of a better mechanism to finance for consumers alternative energy. And a part, big part of our thesis there is like, we think alternative energy is really important to make the world like a cleaner, safer, actually enduring place. And we think one of the, you know, sort of 
limiters on that to broader markets has been accessibility from pricing perspective. And so finding a company that kind of solves both of those things at once seems both to us like a great thing to do for the world, but also a big business opportunity. And so I do think venture can play a role both in investing in things that you, you know, a, a business couldn't get a bank loan for. And in the sense that it's long-term and riskier and is a bit more of a flyer. I also think venture investors are drawn to cool tech, even if there's not an immediate application, uh, you know, but not always with profitable outcomes. I mean, you look at even the most successful funds, it is true that the majority of their companies don't have big exits, even a really successful fund like NEA. That is true. And so inherent is that we're interested in doing things that are more cutting edge and innovative. I get a little, how shall I put this? I feel like there are many companies that wrap themselves in the flag of we're making the world a better place, <laughs> but, but actually You're are here. not. Yes. Um, and so it's always a little bit of a red flag to me when like it almost becomes Duraga. I'm like, okay, well, you guys are making salad spinners that are cheaper and I appreciate there's a big market for that, but I'm not sure how that is making the world a better place. Please explain. And so that's why I just get a little leery of the, um, everyone would like the world to be a better place. Sure. Some people are actively doing stuff about it through their work, and that's great. And we'd love to, you know, be capital partners for those who are going about it in a smart, thoughtful way. But well, you're you're touching on a core tenet of the business school podcast. We agree, and I think it comes up all too often. It's coming up in every episode almost, is that idea of wrapping yourself in the flag of do good when you're just selling a product that whether or not it's a good product, you're just selling a product. I have a quick follow-up to something you said. You said that investors are at times just drawn to cool tech. I think we see a lot of examples of potentially, and I hope that you either reject the premise of the question again and correct me, but I think conventional wisdom would suggest, at least today, that many venture investors are also just drawn to cool brand. And can you speak a little bit to the attraction of cool brand over the last 10 years in consumer investing, right, we've seen a, an ex, I, I worked at Warby Parker for four years very early on and, and a number of other startups after that and have consulted with them. And that is definitely one of the themes, at least when people are talking about the investment community and the entrepreneurship community, the sort of like cool brand aspect of investing. Is that a misnomer or is there some validity to it? Well, I mean... I think it used to be more true. I think WeWork has been a bit of a buzzkill on that part of the market. And I think appropriately so, kind of a reminder of good bone structure matters. It's it's not just like the window dressing. And so I would say, you know, if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, that probably would have figured more highly in my articulation of the Maslow's hierarchy of what venture investors are looking at, especially in consumer side. I do think, you know, one of the things that people will look for and could articulate credibly as a defensible moat is a strong slash cool brand on the consumer side, because it does matter. It does drive consumer purchase decision. But I would say, you know, it's a pendulum that has swung more toward the middle. 
and it's a little bit also of that same pendulum around hyper growth versus the path to profitability. I think it's it's hard to disaggregate those things a little bit. Look, I think I do think brand matters, but I also think there's also like a polite fiction we all tell ourselves that most of what we do is science. And I think the generous construction is that it's a relatively equal blend of art and science. And until a brand is established, I will tell you it is purely art, right? Cool is in the eye of the beholder. And it is also, it's hard to manufacture. I will say like, we definitely see a lot of pitches from companies that tell us how they're going to use science to manufacture cool brands. And I'm always a little bit skeptical of that. I think you can use science to figure out great products. But if you look at, I'm going to parade example of this, like I think one of the things uh, Emily Weiss at Gossier is the parade example of is just like this lightning in a bottle of understanding a consumer at a cellular level and being able to like bring into the world a brand that is just incredibly compelling to a particular set of consumers. And I don't think you could have cooked that up in a lab. That's sort of like her pixie dust. That was something that we kind of, I don't want to say struggled with, but talked through a lot early on at Burrow. Um, a lot of people told us that we had to like come up with some formula for creating this like amazing brand. And when we kind of boiled it down, it was like, we are creating really innovative and cool products and a great experience for customers. And we'll build a brand around that. And there are, there are some formulaic things you can do to create a brand that appeals to, you know, your target market. But beyond that, it's kind of, it's kind of up to your consumers really. And, and you're right. It is, way more art than science in terms of what makes a brand completely take off and become, you get like a cult-like following as they say and, and, and whatnot. And you don't have to do that to build a great company either. Yeah. I mean, like, do you think people love Amazon as a brand? They don't. No. But, you know, and it pains me to say this out loud, but like, it's mostly a fantastic experience. You get the stuff you want really quickly at a pretty good price all the time in any category you can think of. Their experience has transformed the world, full yeah. stop. A great brand, at least for startups, I think they're almost always the exceptions to the rule. I think Emily is a great example of being an exception to the rule of how to build a yeah. beauty company. And I think a lot of these leading brands that have had explosive growth, that have created brands that have cult-like followings very early on, they cultivate cultures of we're all in this together, building something greater than ourselves, which is all very positive. Recently, we're seeing some of those cultures crumble a little bit publicly, unfortunately, but can you speak a little bit to how important it is to evaluate culture internally in companies that you're looking to invest in? Yeah, look, I do think it's really important. I think it's really important for investors. I think it's really important if you're figuring out where you want to go work. And it really comes down to a couple of things, which is positive, constructive cultures are transparent and breed trust. And there's nothing that facilitates speed like trust and transparency inside a company, right? The mental model I have for this is that most of what you do during your day as an operator is throw or catch a trapeze with a colleague and you don't have time to look and see exactly where it's going to be or that it's going to be there when you need it. You just have to trust and like leap into the air. 
and toxic cultures don't promote that. And it means you can't move as swiftly or with as much intention and force as companies where the culture is good. And that to me is, we can say like, as a human being, like I want, I want the cultures to be good because those are the kinds of people I want to work with as a capitalist. I want the culture to be good because those companies build sustainable growth and that's a better investment than a flash in the pan. How do you test for that when you're, when you're evaluating companies? I think it's really easy for, if you just talk with a founder, for them to talk the talk, right? And, and, sure. and kind of sell you on that their culture is great and whatnot. But how do you, how do you really vet that? I mean, I, I think it's a couple of things. One, I mean, we are not alone in doing this. We back channel reference founders and teams. We talk to prior investors. We talk to prior employees. We talk to board members. And you read Glassdoor. Like, this is not complicated things. It is very rare in my experience. And I will also tell you, the VC world is incredibly incestuous and uh, water cooler-ish. And it is, it is rare in my experience for there to be a negative culture someplace that is not kind of known. Do VCs always care, though? Because I feel like sometimes... Right. Well, I am not the I am not the poster girl or apologist for the venture capital world. Do VCs always care? I don't know. At NEA, we care. <laughs> Great answer. Can you speak to what you know? We've been seeing a lot of these companies that we all believed had great cultures start to implode publicly in the press recently. Can you speak to why you think that is happening? Um, I think it's a couple of things. One, I, I like culture is not static. And so I think sometimes the pressure of hyper growth causes changes um, in the culture. And I mean, some of it is just, so that's one, right? And you just think about just the pragmatic things as companies grow quickly, like you start with a great group of people who are interviewing everyone that hires and as more people come on, like figuring out a process to vet both for like qualifications for the work itself, but also for cultural fit, like it just gets further and further from that core group. Um, And it's tough to pull that off with consistency and quality, especially if you're scaling quickly. And I do think culture, I think even healthy cultures evolve over time, right? And so sometimes those evolutions are positive and sometimes they're not. So I don't think it's static. Two is that, so I first worked, I worked at IBM in the late 90s. And I worked there during the early Gerstner years, which was a time of change. And this seems like a non sequitur, but it's not. And there was no glass door then. We were debating whether we should put like URLs on any of our materials because the internet was kind of new as a consumer thing. It was really just escaping the gravitational pull of DARPA at the time. And it was a culture in wild flux. And when I came in, I kind of didn't know what to expect. And I will tell you, I was there for four years and the culture probably changed three times in like huge waves while I was there. And either, you know, not not they were taking private money then, but if you were an outside investor or an employee trying to figure out what IBM was like at that time, you would have had a really, really hard time. And the good news, bad news about that is that IBM could kind of keep it within the family. Now, nothing is hidden ever right? Employees can publish. Everything is leaked. There is a broader culture that is super interested in the inner workings of companies in a way that people didn't used to be. And so I think as companies get to a certain scale, the interest level in the internal culture and machinations also rises. And so I don't know that it's always true that like 
those cultures have changed. It's more just they become more interesting to write about and controversy drives clicks. So I think it's a combination of like, it's tough to main culture as you scale quickly, but also when you get to the point that you have scale, all of a sudden everybody else gets interested in what you're doing. There's so much truth to that in the sense that, I mean, technology just brings everything to light. And like you're saying, a lot of these issues that you're that we're reading about are not new. They've existed for a long time in many companies. They're just being brought to light. So I want to talk a little bit about cultures do change a lot. And I want to talk about what role the valuation that a company has. Sometimes companies are kind of deemed overvalued or founders that feel this pressure to raise at, at too high of a valuation or they're given too high of a valuation and whatnot. I've also heard Mark Laurie talk about how the best thing to do. And I think you actually told me this story of you want your investors right after a round to be excited about the valuation they just came in at, as opposed to them feeling like, man, this company really needs to grow into that valuation over time. So I want to talk about, or have you comment on what have you seen happen with some companies where their valuation was too high and they felt this pressure to grow into it and they've sold you on, hey, if you give us 10, $20 million, we can spend that money to grow to the next level. And there's kind of this mentality on the founder side of like, if I get the money, I know I can spend it and I know I can get to that level. It's almost like if they build it, they will come kind of thing. And sometimes it doesn't happen, right? Sometimes like the money gets spent and they don't get there. And how much of that is like, that? that's the bet that you're making as a VC of like, hey, you told me you could spend the money and get to the next level. If you can't, maybe that's on, it's just, that's the bet we're willing to take. And so you need to prove it. And then, so what role does like too much funding or different valuations and how should, how should founders kind of think about that to do it the right way? I mean, look, I think I, I you know, your characterization of how I think about this is accurate, which is, I do think the best strategy for founders is for the people who have written them big checks to feel like, wow, I'm in the money already because this is not on the come. Now that said, there's just, again, in the blend of art and science, there's definite science around valuation, but a lot of it is just comps to other people's art. Uh And Right. It's hard for me to look at the current equity markets, which we often use as comps and look at those as like a rational marketplace from which like to use as a source of truth. It's just a source of other people's collective, I will put in quotes, wisdom. But it is one of the few common benchmarks that's available to us. I also think valuation is very emotional for founders. It is a sign of achievement. It's a club they want to belong to. I can't tell you how many founders I've talked to who just so badly want the B. And I'm just like, sometimes that makes sense. And sometimes it makes things harder later. And I am not inclined in general to Monday morning quarterback things. But I think the sort of how much money you should raise is a slightly different issue, particularly in the current environment where I think markets are volatile and wonky. And I would say, you know, if you have the opportunity to raise a little more money than you think you need right now, I would do it because I just feel like things always take longer and cost a little bit more than you think. And we are living in strange times. But that said, on the sort of valuation side, To me, it's almost like any other business negotiation, which is if both sides feel like they've compromised a little and they're a little irked, that's probably the right number. 
if one side feels like it's been a really unfair equation and for founders, meaning they feel like they've just gotten way more diluted than they wanted, or for investors feeling they got way less ownership than they wanted, then that's probably not a healthy dynamic to start a relationship with. I think I am a lot more old school on this than your typical venture investor or founder. And it's probably because I spent most of my life inside of public companies where if you live your life governed by market cap, you don't build a sustainable business. And so I'm probably a little bit more, I mean this in the like technical sense, disinterested in this as a thing. To me, it's just an artifact of like how you get enough capital to run the business and attract future investment. But I understand that, you know, for some people, it is the moral equivalent of like, well, I was about to say something off color, but I won't. <laughs> Catch. <laughs> Class dismissed. Okay, let's do the post game. Yeah. God, she knows so much about so many different things. I love that she just like shot down your questions. <laughs> Mine too. Uh, she shot down one of she shot down one of mine, and one of yours. Did she shoot down multiple of mine? She may have. She, she did two years and one of mine. Yeah. I, well, well, that's what I love about her. That's what I love about her. I, mean, I think the best investors, the cream of the crop in people that I've met with that are investors, venture capitalists, they do a couple things similarly. They speak in broad concepts. They apply everything that you're saying to the world. Every little thing that we key in on, they zoom out and they think about it with perspective. And I really appreciate that. She did that throughout the episode. The second thing that they do is they take nothing at face value. She didn't take any of our leading questions at face value. And she had her own perspective on each one of them. And I think there are times where I certainly, and us on this show, but I think I certainly have a tendency with some of these topics because there's emotion tied to it to lead the question a certain way or to assume a certain response. She didn't do that. And it's just a great reminder that all of these things that we're talking about are a mixture of art and science. Many of the things we speak about are exceptions to the rule. And on top of all of that, there are no rules. And it's all just free market capitalism evolving every day and the chaos that ensues. Yeah. So on my two-part question, we were talking about the role of VCs in society and what they should and should not back. And I think she made a really valid point that from a financial perspective, financial return perspective, I think it's very easy for people to criticize hedge funds, VCs, private equity firms, and et cetera on you know these outsized returns and is it good for the companies and are they ripping the companies off yada yada they really are making money for like pension funds university endowments etc are they themselves getting rich in the process yeah the good ones are and they kind of should because it's a really rare skill set to do what they're doing and i think anybody if you have a valuable skill you should be compensated accordingly for it, right? Yeah, it's capitalism. I mean, her answer was completely just a pure capitalist response because the flip side of it is, yes, the people that are giving to those funds are pensions and retirements and public endowments, but they're also wealthy individuals. They are they take money from all over the place. So it's just a capitalist system. They do. I will tell you from my experience at 
a place called Common Fund Capital prior to business school where we would invest in funds as well as directly into companies. It is at least, and I'm, I'm estimating, so don't you know, hold me to this number, it's at least 80%, probably more, all of those things like pensions and endowments and whatnot, because they're yeah. so massive. And those are the ones that get access. Like if you're a fund, if you, rate, if you say you run a $500 million or, or look at NEA, you have a north of $3 billion venture fund. You want fewer LPs, limited partners who invest in your fund, who can write big checks and are sophisticated investors and have experience investing in your space, in your asset class. And the people who run pensions and endowments fit that bill. They can write several hundred million dollar checks at a time because they have a huge pool of capital representing large portions of the population. And so those are the best investors. And so they make up a majority of those funds. It's not predominantly rich people. I think that's the misnomer there. Yeah. And so I, I, I agree with her on, on that side of the equation. But the side that we didn't really dig into too much was something we've talked about before, which is we as a society value we value success, we value monetary gain over kind of everything else. And if that is your only true north, you're going to only invest in things that can make money, but not necessarily things that are going to make the world a better place. And she sort of talked about this, like they don't have to be mutually exclusive. It's harder to find companies that are going to you know, improve the world and improve our society going forward that also make money. That totally exists. It's harder to find them but they exist. And so firms need to be conscious of that in order to, to actually focus on it. And I think NEA is in a unique position because they invest across all different industries. So like they are inherently going to be investing in clean tech and med tech and, you know, new pharmaceutical companies that are creating cures for viruses in the world, right? Like they're already doing that stuff by investing across asset classes. And I, I just, there is a shift in the VC world in some cases to be more focused on that. But I, frankly, I think there's not enough. And, and I say that totally coming from the place of like, Burrow is not a company claiming to save the world. And we are fortunate to have an investor like NEA back us. But that's, they're not looking for us to. And I think there is a myopic way of looking at startups that I fall prey to every day. And I think we all have a tendency to fall prey to at times. And I think this episode was a great reminder that this is a blend of art and science. And this is basically just the pairing of young innovation that wants to grow and become a household name with large amounts of capital and hopefully intelligent, calculated investors that can create the future that we all want to experience. And it's not perfect or easy. And most of the companies that are successful have a balanced alchemy of many different things. The flip side to that is when industries run amok in certain ways, they need to be held accountable and we need to call them out for that so that we can course correct. And I think that, again, is a mixture of art and science. And we're not always going to get it right on this show either. No, we're, we're not. One last thing I wanted to touch on that we, we spoke about at the end of the episode about valuations creating, if you have too high a valuation, you have to grow into it. But then also the, the concept of raising money. Uh, I agree with her point that there's not really such thing as raising too much money. 
if you are a disciplined operator, like she's saying right now with so much uncertainty in the world, having more money rather than less is a blessing because it allows you to, it allows you to survive any sort of downturn that could happen, right? If you're one of the brands that are, are companies that are in an industry that was negatively impacted by COVID-19, having more capital saves your company. And it doesn't make you an inefficient brand to have more capital and reserves to cover your, your losses during this time. But the thing we didn't really touch on is this concept of founders pitch VCs on what they need money for, right? I need to raise $10 million or $20 million or $30 million to get to this next level. And VCs take them at, at face value. And that's kind of how, how they should. It's like, okay, sure. I, I'm willing to invest in you. I want to see if you can get to that level too. It's up to the company then to figure out how to efficiently utilize that capital. And what frequently happens, especially with a lot of consumer brands in the startup world, is they feel this pressure to grow at breakneck pace. Like everybody now wants to beat Casper's growth rate, which is near impossible to do. And so they have this idea that like, okay, I've gotten to this stage now, whatever level I'm at, I think I can grow five or 10x from here year over year if I get this money. And so if I just spend the money, it'll happen. And often what happens is they start spending the money and then the growth isn't coming. And then their burn rate goes way up. They're just losing a lot of money. We've seen this with a lot of companies in the last several months coming to light in the, in the press. It's like you're like blown away by how much money they're losing. And it's because they're chasing this crazy growth, but the money that they're spending isn't generating the growth that they're looking for. To me, that's twofold. Like on one hand, you could say, oh, that's the like, shouldn't VCs guide the companies on how to spend that money? And yeah, to some extent, although board members are not there every day, as Liza said, their role is to help guide and mentor, but you, know, you can't do that once a month, once a quarter and hold the, the CEO responsible. Part of it is the, the, the founder just, they need to prove that they are a good operator. And then also this is proving it out the business model. VCs are saying, I'm giving you $10 million, $20 million. Can you get to the next level with it? If you can't, it might not be because you're not a good operator. It might just be because the business didn't do what we all thought it could do. And that's okay. And that's like the risk that they're taking. It's just, it just puts a lot of pressure on, on founders to figure that out and not, not get too tempted to spend all the money to get the growth as opposed to just saying like, we're going to grow the business the best way we know possible. And now we have plenty of money to do it. And maybe we won't spend it all. But for young and inexperienced founders, it's hard. It's really hard to do that. Yeah. And that's such a great point. It's about responsibility and accountability. You know, she really made it feel to me like this is what venture investing is. You are going to hit, you are going to miss. And to your point before, there are a lot of different reasons to raise at a higher valuation. There are a lot of different reasons to raise more money than other people may think you need. To your point, COVID-19 hits and you have significant cash reserves because you raised more money than you, than you quote needed to. It's the difference between your company surviving or dying. So yeah, her perspective was really refreshing. And I just felt like she's just one of those investors that has such a breadth of experience and knowledge that she refuses to fall prey to clickbait culture and flash in the pan and moments in time. And there's a lot of lessons there. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, it's about accountability. It shouldn't all fall with 
the people giving money to companies, the founders themselves have to be held accountable for how they run their business. And you know what? Maybe that's why all these companies are being, what's happening with the, I know we don't love how publicly companies get taken down, but a lot of what's happening is kind of necessary. If culture has shifted internally for the worse since they were invested in, if they were spending out of control and in an inefficient manner, like Liza said, that's the role of the board then and the investors to say, hey, you know, maybe you're not suited to lead this company anymore. And if the board members are the CEO's boss, then it's their responsibility to say, okay, who can lead this ship forward in a positive way? Because the person that we backed one, two, three, four years ago was great then, but maybe they're not great now. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of these companies. Yeah, she did speak to, though, the pressure and expectation of hyper growth and how that can at times have negatively impact company culture. But then she also said something that surprised me a little bit, which was that venture money is more patient than a lot of other types of investment, which I think if you're not a seasoned investor, and I am not, that surprises you. I think we think of venture capital as impatient in a lot of ways. Can you quickly touch on that? Is venture capital actually more patient? Because, I mean, if I really think about it, there's a lot of companies that have raised a lot of money that are private and investors might get frustrated that those companies have not had liquidity events, but there's nothing they can really do. So can you speak a little to that a little bit really quickly? Yeah. So hedge funds that invest primarily in public markets, obviously the return profile is immediate, right? Like you need to have returns every single year and you're constantly making trades. Private equity tends to be more like the three to five year horizon where you need to, you're buying a company and you're either turning it around or you're growing it or you're restructuring it or whatnot. And then within three to five, it can be a little bit longer than that years, you're looking to, to turn around and sell the company again or take it public or whatever, right? To move toward that exit. VC from early stage to exit, like if you invest around the series A or B, they are willing to wait five to 10 years for an exit to happen. I think that's what she means by it being more patient. It's definitely not a permanent capital situation, whereby if you have a, a family office or a firm that, that invests with the, off the balance sheet of a big public company or something, um, like the Berkshire Hathaway model, which is permanent capital to buy a company and hold it for forever. Those types of situations are even more patient because they don't have a fund structure. But those are pretty rare. And so in terms of like VC is definitely more patient than private equity or growth equity or definitely public investing. If you are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.